Hi everyone, I'm Armand, your host for Academic Stripe, and I have the great pleasure of hosting Andrew Brendel today to talk about their book, Moving Words, Literature, Memory and Migration in Berlin, that came out of University of Toronto Press this year. Welcome to Academic Stripe, Andrew. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I mean, uh, before we dive into the book, can we hear a bit uh, about your, you? Sure. So uh, I'm an anthropologist by training. I'm an anthropologist of literature, which I think puts me in a sort of smaller subfield. Um, so my, my work sort of engages with a lot of different disciplines. I'm very interested in being sort of um, experimental in the relationship between, between different fields. And I've, I'm also somebody who's taught primarily in interdisciplinary programs. I've spent my career working with students who are coming from really different backgrounds, who have really different interests, and so are not necessarily anthropology students, but are interested in the kinds of um, methods and insights and um, stories that we bring to the table. And I mean, like, it really comes out in the book, like this kind of crossing different fields. Uh, how did you find yourself at the intersections of anthropology and literature? And how then this book come about? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I actually came to anthropology from philosophy, um, which was my first interest, uh, my sort of first love in school. Um, and I came to anthropology because I was exposed to it by chance. I had wonderful teachers as an undergraduate who gave me a lot of space to play and to sort of try out ideas. And anthropology seemed to me like the kind of space where one could do that, could sort of experiment with insights and methods and styles of writing and styles of thinking um, with some relative freedom. Uh, and so I, I sort of came to anthropology weirdly through through philosophy. And I started doing field work in graduate school on a very different kind of project. And I was interested in how texts showed up in Germany that were very inspiring to these very famous, very influential philosophers um, from other parts of the world. And so it was a sort of historical anthropology project. Um, and I got to Germany, I spent time in Heidelberg and in Berlin, and I found that there were these incredible number of independent bookstores that were still selling these antiquarian books, um, including sometimes in things like Sanskrit. And I became very interested not only in the sort of life of books and texts as they were being lived contemporarily, but also the ways in which that culture, that sort of um, proliferation of textual practices and bookstores and things was reverberating with uh, the political moment that, uh, that was sort of in the air. This was the period of the so-called migration crisis during the, the majority of my fieldwork. And I, I started to see how resonant that history was with what was happening today. So I sort of came meandering, as I think many of us do, to the final project. And I mean, since, I mean, I thought, since, I mean, your book is just published and like, I know you, I mean, this is, this is coming out of your dissertation. Um, maybe before we go deeper into the book, I, I'm curious about also, like, I mean, this was one of the reasons why I started this podcast. I'm curious about like, how was the process of turning your dissertation into the book? What do you see as biggest, like, what do you see as the differences, challenges in the process? Um, and if you would like to say something about the process itself and 
give some tips for the listeners maybe? Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me, and I think for many people, graduate school is sort of an experience in trying to find your voice, sort of being awed and fascinated and inspired by all kinds of different voices, often encountering new voices for the first time and sort of wishing one had the sort of capacity to do those kinds of things. Um, and I think it's also a little bit of an experience often in, in failing to to find one's voice and being able to sort of assert it in the way um, that you might want to. And so I think writing writing the dissertation was a first attempt at sort of collecting the things and putting them together in different ways that um, sort of make up the weave of the book. Uh, it was an attempt to think through a lot of things, uh, be inspired by, get carried away with, um, take flight with different different ideas. And um, when you go to write the book, I felt like a lot of what I had to do was remove some of those sort of um, scaffolding. I had to let go and try to find... Um, my voice with less sort of the safety net that I had had. I'm somebody who's very committed to the idea that um, what it means to find your voice is to find it in the company and the words of others. So I retain that, I think. I'm somebody who thinks through words that I'm borrowing from other people. Um, I think quotation and those kinds of things are very central, not just to what anthropologists do, but what it means to have a human life and language. Um, so I think... I think in some ways of the book is still an attempt to do that kind of collecting work um, or just create a collection of some kind, but also to remove some of the things that were extraneous and that were bogging me down and um, sort of made it hard for other people to find their way into. So I think the process of revising was a, was a lot of, of getting comfortable letting go of stuff. When I work with students now, I often talk about there's a sort of process of moving things into footnotes. And then once they're in footnotes, you can sort of feel a little, a little more freedom to get rid of them. Um, so for me, it was a lot of cutting um, that, the, that the manuscript went through. Almost all of the chapters, I would say four of the chapters went through major conceptual changes. Um, the introduction I pretty much threw out because I found I needed to find a new a new sort of voice for myself there um, that was more to the point, more straightforward, I think. And I wrote a totally new chapter that's probably the most formally experimental of the chapters, which serves as a kind of conclusion, uh, or at least it will strike, I think, anthropologists and anthropology students as the most formally experimental, maybe less so in other in other fields. So um, it went through a pretty thoroughgoing change. It took me about, I would say, a year to really get back to it and to have enough distance that I could start thinking about it as a book. Uh, that's a luxury that not everybody has, um, but I think is one that really helped for me. I needed the time to sort of have some space from graduate school, have some space from the project as a dissertation and the anxieties and the disappointments that go along with dissertation writing and then to be able to reproach it and be excited about it again um, the other thing that i would say about about the process both in dissertation and the book i'm i'm somebody who likes to maintain some of those different kinds of interests i really thought about the chapters um, as engaging with different kinds of literatures different kinds of voices different kinds of problems and i didn't want the book or the dissertation to be too um one note Feel like sometimes 
we have a tendency to over um, determine the whole story of an ethnography under a master concept or a master narrative. And that was something I, I really sort of refused or, you know, maybe out of naivete, I don't know, but I, I felt committed to the idea that one could have chapters that moved in totally different directions or in crab-like sort of formation. So um, that also let me get excited about it again. Every time coming to the chapters again and to new literatures as a way of keeping it kind of fresh, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, in our field, um, when you've been working on a project for 10 years, uh, that can be a, that can be a real struggle. Definitely. And I mean, like, uh, you, you, I mean, you said that, like the different chapters, they go in different directions, but I mean, I, I don't know, like when I finished the book, I had this feeling of like, everything came together so well, although I, I understand what you mean. Like they, they, they refer to different stories, people, different parts of Berlin. Uh, you know, you also take us through like really personal stories, authors, uh, writing, um, migration histories and stories, uh, and like cityscape of Berlin, which I really enjoyed, especially now that I live in Berlin. Uh, but I mean, like also, I think it's also something I was really impressed by is about this book is the your writing style, because it. It's not an imposing style of writing. Like we're free to still, we're free to think with you as we read along. And it's not like, I mean, as you said, like one, maybe that that's the case. If you gave us one master concept to think everything with. Uh, so like, it's, I, I, I don't know. I felt really, I mean, it was, to me, it was a piece of literature at the same time. It wasn't only like a um, social sciences book. You know, uh, how did you, how do you think you strike that balance? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I mean, it's, it's interesting because as somebody who works with people who are themselves writers and who are thinking about many of the things that anthropologists think about though, with different, in different ways. And sometimes they have very different kinds of questions, very different kinds of concerns. I, I'm actually not one of those anthropologists who, um, thinks of themselves as a literary figure or, or, or as doing literature. And I think that's maybe sounds odd to people. You might expect that I would be somebody who thinks of that. I think um, there's a particularity to what we're doing or to what I'm doing in this book. Um, but I'm also somebody who um, therefore has a kind of a sort of uh, desire to let other people speak and not to be in total control and total mastery of the material. I think part of that is because I felt like a lot of the ways people talk about Berlin um, gave it a too static, a too, um, too controlled picture as if we knew exactly where people of this kind or that kind were living and what rhythm was. But I think the rhythm of everyday life doesn't look like that, um, that it has interruptions and different voices and um, different styles and different textures. And I wanted the book to reflect, formally to reflect that fact, that it would have sort of the quality of, of what it's like to live in the city, that these different things come together in different ways. Um, so I think, I think that was important to me. I'm also somebody who, <laughs> 
I, I it's sort of a cliche to say one reads and then you write the way of the stuff that you're reading. But but I think because I I of the the sort of history of my own reading, the book bears some of those different styles. I'm somebody who starts to talk like people that I'm talking that I'm spending a lot of time talking to, or write like people that I'm spending a lot of time reading. And I think that texture is also there. I think the, the book, I think everybody's book is a little bit history of their own reading. Um, and it's something I'm thinking about a lot now, not just the things that are very explicit, okay, novels about Berlin or Berlin-based writers, but whatever I'm reading, hallway conversations, those things leave a trace, even if not super marked on the writing itself. Um, and sometimes I'm not even aware of the traces that those things are are leaving on my own writing. So I think um, for me, if it has those qualities, it's it's a reflection of the experiences themselves. Um, rather than think, for example, that um, let's say a literary quality of a text is, is a, just a tool that I can use in order to more felicitously evoke something. Um, I think of it as just sort of part of what life is like. Um, for many of us. And I mean, that's kind of reflected in the coming together of literature, memory, and migration, like these seemingly different, at least, uh, stories. Uh, can you can you tell us a bit about that, about how, how these things come together in your book? Yeah, I think um, the conjunction, I mean, one, I think the fact that literature seems like an inch, like a weird entry point into thinking about the politics of migration or the politics of memory in Germany um, is itself kind of an odd artifact given how massive a social institution it is in the country. And this is an argument I make, I make quite early that it's so integral to uh, a nation building project in Germany. It plays such a sort of outsized role in the formation of the national imaginary. And I think in shaping the ways that people ordinarily think about so-called cultural differences, migration, think about history. It, it shapes the languages that we use to talk about those things. So I think treating literature anthropologically was a sort of to the contrary of, of, of what people might think, I think all, all too natural an entry point into, into thinking about at least Berlin, a city that's so sort of equated with this new, um, new kind of German literature. Um, and I think memory and migration, this is a sort of um, big topic now in, in the field of German studies. What sort of, how should we think about the relationship between uh, these two hot topics, let's say, in the field? Um, and I find myself very much on the side that uh, says, you know, we can't think about memory, which, which plays a huge public cultural role in Germany without thinking about histories of colonialism, histories of migration, um, histories of, of epistemic violence also. Uh, and so for me, um, they have to go together. I mean, memory is so tied into the ways that migration is disciplined or mobility is disciplined as migration in Germany that that was also sort of a natural fit. And I think there's a tendency, there's a pressure sometimes for academics to come out with a simple story with a sort of neat commodity that we can sell and that I can advertise. Um, and sort of like I was saying about the different chapters, I felt a real desire to not do that, um, for this not to be a story about this one thing that I can tell you a pretty, uh, 
well-delineated story about, which means dwelling with, which means being okay with messiness, the sort of whirly-burly. Um, I think that's that's important. I think there's a political and moral valence of that claim um, for anthropology. Uh, I was very fortunate to have an editor at Toronto who let me do that. Uh, I think having the sort of space and the support and the encouragement to do that and not to iron out the details as it were um, was really important for me. And that's something I I often tell to to people who are starting this process that, you know, finding someone who believes in the core of the project and the voice of the project and isn't trying to overwrite it by giving me a, give me a sales pitch, um, give me something I can advertise. I think that's really important for us uh, at this particular juncture of, of higher education. And I mean, maybe this is also a good point to ask you, like, how was the publication process like? What, what was it like? And um, how did it kind of, uh, how did it affect the final version of the book? So I was very fortunate in about a million different ways. Um, the first way that I was fortunate and that I think I've learned in the subsequent 10 years is rarer and rarer is that I had incredible mentorship in graduate school. Um, I had a whole group of teachers who put an enormous amount of effort into every single page that I wrote. Uh, And so whereas I have a lot of friends who felt like no one had read their work coming out, that was the opposite of my experience. I, I didn't have that feeling. So I felt like in some ways, I felt a kind of confidence with the material that I knew that these people who I admired and respected and who'd spent so much time lovingly looking at every word had looked at it. And the benefit of that, I mean, there's myriad benefits of that, but one of the benefits is that it it freed me up, I think, to think a little bit more expansively or playfully with the material because I felt like I was on some kind of bedrock. Obviously, the, the... my approach is not conventional in any number of ways. And so its recognition as anthropology was always going to be tricky. Um, And I made my peace with that. Um, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it not being, um, that people will have to struggle with it in some kind of way. Uh, And I was looking for a publisher that would let me retain those things. I wanted a publisher, for example, this is maybe sort of, very concrete sort of thing, but that would let it have an audience that was in literary studies and was in anthropology and maybe was in philosophy. Um, And so I wanted a publisher that had strengths in those subfields. They don't always go together. Different publishers have really different interests, really different strengths. Um, Toronto had a great list in German studies. They're doing, they're supporting a lot of really interesting young scholars. Um, They had this sort of well-known, well-established anthropology series. So you had a lot of things that, that I found very attractive about Toronto. And um, actually, it, one of my mentors got to know uh, my eventual editor, Jody, who, and said, you know, I think this would be a good fit. You should, you should reach out. And it was the, I think that I reached out the year that COVID went, uh, that COVID set AAA online. And I said, you know, we're not going to be there, but can we meet virtually? Uh, and she said, yes. And I said, look, here's, here's the book. Here's what I would like it to be. I would love it to have, to be listed on these different disciplines lists. And I was very fortunate for her to say, great, let's do that. Let's see if we can get a book to, to f- fly on these different um, 
these different lists. And so I was very lucky. I had an advanced contract for the book. Um, the other thing that Toronto did, another thing that Toronto did that I thought very helpful was they got great reviewers. Um, I felt very nervous, <laughs> as I think any first-time author probably does, about what reviewers would say about the idea that your whole book would go before people who are really smart and know your field and know more than you about all kinds of things and aren't already on your team. Um, so while I'd had all these brilliant mentors who'd, who'd gone over every word, that's still a very scary thing, especially when um, it's possible. In fact, in my case, it was even desirable that these would be people coming from other disciplines that wouldn't be sort of on the team of anthropology going in necessarily. Um, that said, the reviews that I got were fabulous. I mean, they were they were obviously people who really knew Berlin and they really knew Germany. Um, and I was somebody who was trained not by German studies, not scholars of Germany per se, um, which is actually something I'm also grateful for. Um, I was trained by people whose approach to writing and to thinking was one that I found inspiring rather than um, working with somebody because we had the same sort of field interests. Um, but then have somebody who's working in those places. I mean, I, you know, you were talking about um, being familiar with Berlin yourself. Obviously, you've done a lot of research there. One of the reviewers said something like, I could recognize all these different scenes in the book. And I said, you know, that's sort of the ultimate compliment. <laughs> to an I mean, it's what every ethnographer is dreaming of hearing. Um, and, and they really... They were very supportive, obviously, of the book. They were very positive, but they also just were very serious. And I think it's hard, given all the commitments that we have, to, to write reviews that are very serious, but also very supportive and very positive. Um, so I have to say that the review process was um, was overall a really good one for me. Um, I have other anxieties about the book. The cover is an anxiety that I have about the book. I think many first-time authors sort of spend so much time fantasizing about what their cover of their book will look like. Um, and the press really allowed me to have a lot of input. Um, this was a, the, the cover of the book is this painting that I've sort of always really admired and, and really loved. And they got permission to use it. And the designer worked with me on putting it together. And so, I, you know, when you sort of hold it in your hands, you feel like <laughs> this is way better than anything that I could have done. Um, and, um, so I think it was, it was really a very positive experience for me. And I think, so I'm also, and I have been for a little while now, a co-editor of a book series at Fordham, and we've brought a lot of books out and, um, I'm the sort of junior series co-editor, but it's a really fascinating thing for me to get to work with people who are going through this process now also, and to see the process that other people go through. I think a lot of us... Um, who are recent PhDs, or I guess I'm not that recent anymore, but relatively recent PhDs, first book writers, those kinds of things, um, don't get a lot of mentorship or advice about the process of getting a book published. Maybe we had some advice about getting an article published. Oftentimes we don't have that advice either. And so I've actually gotten a lot of pleasure out of working with people who are going through the process and who are like, how do you approach a press? How do you write a book proposal that gets people interested? What is the right press uh, for me? Does it matter that my book comes out in soft cover? Um, you know, things that are the sort of nitty gritty mechanics of, of the business of academic publishing, 
that nobody seems to know until you've gone through it a couple of times. Um, And everybody's experience is really different. I mean, I have, I have friends who've had totally different sort of experiences going through, you know, some places where the series editor was really involved, some places where a series editor is involved, some places where they don't have a series. Um, So it really, really ranges uh, so much that it's, that even one book to the next can look so different. Um, So I will say I've learned a lot also from working with other people going through that process as they're going through it, um, usually for the first time. That's been a been a really enjoyable uh, experience for me. Also, that sounds wonderful. What's the name of the series that you're editing at Fordham? So the series is Thinking from Elsewhere. Um, we've had a bunch of really incredible books come out recently. Um, I would advise everybody to check them out. Um, we're very we've been very lucky to have people who are also thinking about the writing they're doing in very creative ways, um, both at a sort of senior scholars, people like Sarah Pinto and others who are doing these sort of interesting um, new work and also junior scholars who are writing their first books, but who we want to encourage to really double down on their own voice um, in their books and not have to overly conform to this sort of um, master concept model, but to do the things that are true to them, um, and which is, which is really hard and really scary. And it's hard to, to find those places. But I think, I think you know, having benefited myself from a lot of mentorship, I think um, that's something really important for those of us who've gone through this process to do, is to sort of spend time helping other people go through that process. I, I did a sort of one-off seminar at one point when I was um, teaching at another school a couple of years ago. And a lot of the postdocs and things were like, nobody has ever sat down to be like, here's the email you write to <laughs> <laughs> to say yeah talk to you <laughs> no i mean like this is this is one of the reasons why i wanted to start this podcast because these are things that are not talked about enough are not talked out in the open um so like i want to i want to as i find someone as experienced like you i want to ask even more questions about this if that's okay um yeah. So one of the things like you mentioned that you got an advanced contract uh, with Toronto Press. Um, at this point, did you did you have a full book manuscript ready to be reviewed, or when when was the time that you reached out to the editor? That's a that's probably one of the most common questions that that I hear from from you know early career scholars and, and first book writers. Um, I think it really depends on on what you need and where you are. In my own case, um, there was definitely stuff that I was still working on, uh, but I felt like the proposal was in a place where I could talk to somebody about the project. And I felt like what I needed was somebody to, to tell me that they believed in it who wasn't already on my team and to support it in the ways that that I felt would help me get to the end stage of writing. So the book went to full review um, it, it went through sort of a, a first review of the proposal and some samples, and then it went through a full peer review, and then it goes to a board for approval after that. Um, and so it went through all of those stages. Um, and I think that really helped. I'm, I mean, I'm an anxious person. I suspect many, many academics who are writing their first book are anxious people. Um, so having an editor who, who knew these ropes so well, who would say like, yeah, I think we're going in the right direction. And now it's ready to send out 
um, really helped. I also had a, a senior person as a faculty editor, a series editor, um, who also was played a key role in being enthusiastic and supportive. And that makes you it makes you able to write in a different way. I think when you when you when you have that. Um, you know, some people, for some people, it makes more sense to just right away send out the whole manuscript. The manuscript is in, is really well polished. It's in a really good place. Um, some people are earlier and they say, I, you know, what I'd like to do is to find a series where the editors will really work with me. Um, not everybody's willing to do that. But if you but if you're somebody who wants that, there definitely are places where you can find that kind of mentorship. Um, I can say for for our series, you know, when, when we find somebody who's really early, but who has something really incredible or something really exciting, then that's somebody that will spend more time actually workshopping the manuscript before it goes out. Um, so we have a sort of tailored approach, depends on what the individuals need, um, rather than a sort of one size fit all approach. Every series, every press has their own kind of strategy. Um, so I think I think a lot of it depends on, on what the individual author um, where they are with the project and what would help them get to the next best version of the project um you know sometimes the peer reviews are really crucial on that too there are times when you know the reviewers will really say you should really think about doing it this way and a light will go off and that'll be really helpful and so this whole process of finding good reviewers although it sounds like a sort of something we should just take for granted um is itself (laughs) it requires a little bit of um finesse also to find the people who are going to say the thing that helps the book get better um, which is obviously obviously the goal um so i think i think that stuff's really important i think you know the the other thing that we can't pretend doesn't exist is that the market pressure is so extreme um for junior scholars that there is so much pressure to have a book there is so much pressure to have a contract there's so much pressure to have a university based contract in the united states at least um, that I think people feel a lot of pressure to rush through the process or to do the right thing or to say the right thing. Um, and there are good things about that, but I think there are many troubling things about that for intellectual and creative work. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think we have to take into account the degree to which that also looms over many people's head. I was a contingently employed faculty member while I was writing, um, this book, I think making my sort of peace with that and, and having a sort of sense of where my career was going and what the market was helped me actually to say, well, I'm just going to write the book I want to write anyway. And sort of, um, you know, that doesn't work for everybody. People have different demands on them, but, but that was my sort of feeling. I mean, as we all know, even when, when you check all the boxes uh, and then you do everything right it's like a lottery basically so why not do the thing that you enjoy doing instead of <laughs> trying to check boxes yeah yeah that's and i think you know there's also there's a lot of discussion now in academia about about questions about how why the audience of a book should be do you write it for the biggest possible public you can are you writing it for one specific audience and obviously there's a lot of pressure to write for bigger audiences um and i think that's something that we all really have to wrestle with pretty seriously and to navigate and to think to think more deeply about um than assume we know what the right answer to those those questions are i think i think people 
feel like they've got it all figured out what the right sort of scale or what the right sort of pitch for for a book is and for me you know this is this is the pitch that i wanted to to hit and um I think other people have different strategies. So I think, you know, finding, finding your, I totally agree with what you're saying, I suppose, is what I want to say that um, what's the point of it if you're not going to write the thing that makes sense for you. Yeah. And I mean, I am curious also, like if you have people that you read for inspiration for writing. For writing specifically. I yeah. mean, I, I read a lot and I read a lot of, um, random things i mean i read plenty of junk um, <laughs> which is um which is also fun yeah i i i do i mean i i find myself uh, going back to certain uh people quite a lot that i re- i mean my own teacher Bina das is somebody who i go back to all the time um when i write because i i find myself constantly discovering new kernels and things that she said and she's written um uh, so she's somebody that that I read and and wish I had the talent of <laughs> to do <laughs> write like that. Um, I, I read a lot of literature. Um, I would say I read probably more literature than I do either anthropology or philosophy. Sometimes um, I would say um, Nabokov. Who uh, there's a there's a vignette that opens the book, as you know, from about Nabokov, and um, he's a I, I think. I saw once somebody called him the greatest prose stylist in English ever. And I think there's something about his prose that I do find really very compelling. Um, I have a chapter in the book about Yoko Tawada. I love her books. Um, I think she's fabulous. Um, And uh, it's very genuine when I say that reading them has changed the way that I thought about, about language and thought about Berlin. And so I, you know, um, though i think i think literature is not just um it's not a sort of mere addition to the, to the content it's actually the site in which people are doing a lot of thinking um i think i'm also somebody who reads in the process of writing i don't know if that makes sense but i i, I think through books through writing about them um, and so often I find myself compelled to write as a way to struggle through what I'm reading. Hmm. Um, I had, I did a, a small essay for, for a volume that we're editing now that, um, came from just having been struck over many years with several short stories and wanting to think through them. And then when you're forced to write about them, I'm one of those people who doesn't, I can't write the whole first draft and then come back and edit it. I'm somebody who has to like wrestle against my own incapacities and shortcomings at every sentence Uh, but that's how i do the thinking i think the other side of that is that teaching has been really really important for the way that i read and the way that i think um i like to teach things that i'm that i'm are both sometimes things that i've read a million times and i'm finding new things i find that um with somebody like marx um where every time i teach Marx, especially when I teach him in the company of friends of mine who know much more about Marx, I find something, I find my understanding changes and having to teach it to students really changes it. Um, I think I'm a a much better writer and reader than I would have been had I not spent so much time teaching uh, enthusiastic undergrads, very slow techniques of reading. Um, Mm. I think that's had a really big impact. I, I was very fortunate to have a teaching job 
uh, early on where it was everything was sort of team taught with folks in different disciplines. And there's a lot of trace of that, I think, in my work, the, the sort of experience of thinking about how to teach great things to students in the company of people who are coming from different disciplinary backgrounds was super important for me, not least because they all knew so much more about the books that we were teaching than I tended to. Um, but also just in terms of like the practices of reading and writing that you get in different fields. I have a lot of, I have a lot of colleagues in, in political theory or in philosophy or literary studies. And I think that has shaped, shaped a lot of my thinking in different ways. I mean, even now I'm teaching a course where for the first time I've had to teach like, um, you know, a slightly different approach to, to ancient Greece, for example. And, um, it's been really enlightening because you come to a text differently depending on the context that you're reading it in. And, and so now these are also, these are books that sometimes I read since I was an undergraduate and I'm reading them very differently as the faculty member in the front of the room. <laughs> um, so I, I think my students have been key. I, I did something which I'm usually loath to do with the book, which is I didn't assign the book, but I let students discuss um, different, ma- before it was published, different manuscripts, I gave it to them as part of a class on politics of the culture concept in Europe. And I think letting students see that they were part of the process of making a book, making knowledge, um, was both important for me pedagogically, but also for, um, like the, there's like if I said earlier, there's a sort of history of reading behind every book. There's also a history of teaching for those of <laughs> us who do a lot of teaching. Um, and the courses that I've taught, that's definitely a running theme in the book. Um, for me at least. So I think I see those all as really integral. If I, I've spent one semester not teaching and I, I basically was sort of stifled in my capacity to write. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. But. Definitely. Um, and I'm, I'm curious also, what, what are you working on now? What's next? So uh, it happens to be that that's a good transition. But I'm thinking right now about a book project that I sort of is at a proposal stage I will say, since we've been talking about graduate school and, and book proposal, I was saying to somebody recently that somehow it was easier to write the proposal for me the second time around because the shadow of the dissertation was not there. <laughs> and that was freeing in all kinds of ways because you really are sort of, you can be, you can sort of dream <laughs> and see what comes. Um, I, I want to do a small book right now that I'm, that I'm in the process of, of, of writing on histories of, of readership in anthropology. What is it that anthropologists have read? Um, mm-hmm. Not necessarily where it's, I'm reading this to do field work about it, but what are the sort of, um, you know, sort of an intellectual history approach to um, recent anthropologists. And I've taken people who I find to be, who've been important for my thinking. And I'm interested, especially in this idea that we sort of live our lives in the company of literature and of, and of writing. Um, as will be clear to, to people who've read the book, I think of literature as part of our everyday lives. It matters a lot to people. Um, we carry around scenes and characters and authors and things with us in our hearts in various kinds of ways. And so I mean that um, not metaphorically, I mean it really, people really do live um, life with literature. And so I think um, it's interesting to think about what have been the sort of companions of thought for um, figures that I that I'm, 
I really admire. So the, the book will be sort of a series of essays. Um, hopefully, it will be a series of essays about the things that people read um, and that accompanied them in their thinking. Um, so I'm, I'm working on a chapter right now on Paul Friedrich, um, who always, it turns out, since graduate school, took copious notes alongside his field notes about the other stuff that he was reading. Um, hmm. And it shows up, obviously, in his published work quite a lot, um, but also some of it doesn't. And I think um, the role played by that relationship is is quite fascinating um, and gives us a totally different way to think about anthropology um, and think about writing and think about um, whose voices are and aren't in texts in visible and invisible ways. Um, and uh, the power-laden nature of that sometimes, but um, but certainly just to think of another way of looking at how anthropological thinking happens. Um, so I've, I've, that's sort of what I'm anticipating doing at the moment, or that's what I'm, I'm going to focus on for the next, I don't know, little bit of time until it takes me to write the book. I, I, like I said, I haven't had the experience yet of writing a book totally from scratch. I've published mm-hmm. a couple of edited volumes and um, this monograph that was the dissertation, but it's it's already quite different writing experience for me because I, I think I'm, because I don't have the sort of anxieties that I might've had in graduate school. It's, it's a, I can sort of write it in a different way from the start. But now that I say that, I'm quite sure that I will have to revise it many, many times. And I'm also, a, a, I'm pretty slow going in the, in the way that I approach these things. Um, it takes me, it takes me a lot of time because I get really stuck on like a word that isn't working. Uh, (laughs) And I don't know if I've, if I've adopted that habit from people that I've done field work with, or (laughs) if that's always been my habit. Um, but I'm sort of in that place right now where I'm, I'm eager to do it. And the other thing that, that anybody who lives in academia knows that sometimes, we sort of imagine that we get into this because we'll spend all day in the archives reading and writing. Um, and that's not how it works. Um, so it's also interesting now, you know, for the last, whatever, seven or eight years, teaching a full load and advising students and going to meetings and, and also talking about a book that just came out, but my brain is already on the next book. Um, it's tricky to find the space to work on the new thing even when that's the thing that's the sort of most exciting to you. Hmm. I'm always somebody who's found that I'm, it's easier for me to write any particular thing if I have other things also going on, because it means <laughs> that the energy strikes, I can sort of channel it to the thing that I'm working on. Um, and so I, a little bit of that is also is also happening to me. I'm, I'm one of those people who suffers from, um, always saying yes to every invitation. And, um, you know, I think that's something I probably need to work on, but um, I find it also helpful in some ways to be forced to write in different modes and in different contexts. I'm just finishing a chapter now. I was really excited to get an invitation to write a book about teaching, uh, write a chapter about teaching. And it's just such a different like way to think about your writing process when you're thinking about talking to other teachers about teaching than it is I'm going to convince you about this, this claim that I'm making. Um, so I think having those alive all at one time has been really, has been productive for me. I know a lot of people are going to disagree vehemently with that um, <laughs> approach, but that's, that's worked for me at least. Well, I mean, in any case, I look forward to the 
next book. <laughs> I appreciate it. If hopefully it'll it'll exist at some point. I, it's, a, it's a strange sort of when when you have a book that's sort of um, just come out. First, people immediately say to you, "What's the next book?" Um, and you're often at a loss <laughs> for what the next book is. Um, and also because you know, I sort of imagined that I would be free of the first book now, but now now I have to. I'm responsible for it in some other kinds of ways. Um, so it's it's a very interesting moment to be on, but it's also a very exciting moment because people are picking up the book and doing what they will with it and disagreeing with it and agreeing with it and critiquing it and all those things. It'll have a life of its own, which I will have some role to play, but not, not an exclusive role. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's a very exciting place to be, but also it's nerve wracking because then also you have to do it again. Well, on this wonderful note, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us. It was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate the chance to, to talk about this. And, and I'm grateful, as I'm sure many of your listeners are, for, for the opportunity to talk about these things. Thank you important. so much. And until next time.